left to your right. Thomas and Will had no computer up and running, no lights up and running, no sound this morning, and they put everything together. So it looks like everything is put together here this morning, but it took a lot of work to get us to where we're at today. So thank you for working very hard this morning. As always, the worship team, thank you for preparing for the uh, time of worship. Liddy, thank you for reminding me how important prayer is toward our future pastor. One of the times we got to talk to Liddy when she was in South Africa, she was telling me she was talking to her missionary uh, peers and maybe some people above her, explaining our situation here at PCC. So she told me even the people in South Africa, the missionaries, are praying for us, praying for our pastors, praying for me. And I, that means a lot, Liddy. Thank you for reminding that. I heard that you had a chance to speak to the YF on Friday, so thank you for coming back and sharing with YF. I think uh, the YF should appreciate hearing what you've done in South Africa. Here's a picture of uh, some bikers yesterday. This is the RISE group, or some of the RISE group, who went biking <clears throat> around the point yesterday. Um, always neat things happening. Will was alluding to that fact that God is doing things to our church. I'm sorry I don't have pictures of all the things you guys are doing, but I like to see you guys interacting with each other, spending time with each other, finding ways to love each other, pour into each other's lives. And as week after week goes by, I'm very thankful that we have a family that we can do that in. So, Fathers, I'm glad that you could stand up <clears throat> somewhat reluctantly, thinking that your job is not that important, that you and the time you've invested in your families is small. It's probably the most important thing that you'll do in this life. That's my suspicion, is love your wife. Pour into your children. Spend that time loving as the Lord has loved us. Uh, men have a very special responsibility in this, in this lifetime. Being a father is probably one of the most important things that you'll ever do. Hope all of you get a chance to uh, celebrate Father's Day. Okay, so we're closing up Joshua. I told you we're going to finish Joshua by the end of June. <clears throat> and I hope very much to keep to my promise there that we will finish. We're just about there. Within a week or two, we're going to finish up Joshua. I'm not going to review very much. Just the last week, in fact, I want to review with you what we talked about last week. In his farewell sermon, his farewell message to Israel... If it's disagreeable, he's in the negative. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. It's like if you don't want to serve the Lord, if you guys came this far, we conquered all these nations, seven years of battle. If you don't want to serve the Lord right now, here's your options. Whether it's the gods of your fathers, which were beyond the river, the Egyptians, the gods, the God of Abraham, I mean the pagan gods of Abraham before he came to the Lord, or the gods of the Amorites, whose land are you, are you living? Baal, Molech, who sacrificed children. Do you guys want those gods? Do you want that kind of life? And he poses the direct question to them. What are you going to serve? And Joshua says, what's our memory verse? Without looking, you guys remember our memory verse last week? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was what we learned last week. And that's what Joshua was saying. This is... Basically, a sermon continued in today. So he set the tone last week, and uh, we are going to continue that this week. So just to finish last week, we talked last week about how many of our young people are leaving the faith, are leaving the church. We'd say three-fourths, at least maybe 75% of the uh, freshmen are going to be leaving the faith, leaving uh, the church as they go away to school. And you think, man, that's huge numbers we're talking about. We talked about how many... Christians it takes to actually just evangelize to one Christian. We thought 43 Christians it takes just to bring one person to the Lord. 
And so we ran through a lot of things last week and how difficult in our world it is to stand firm on the truths of God. And that's why we closed last week, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now it's going to be a little more difficult this week. It's going to get a little more complicated. The, the lesson's going to go a little bit deeper this week. So stay with me as Joshua works through this concept. Um, one more time, what's our memory verse? But as for me and my house, serve the Lord. Okay, so let's stand and read today's message. It's from Joshua twenty four sixteen. Let's read together. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after he has done good to you. By this morning, we had an opportunity to sing to you and remember that you are our God. As we discover what that means to be in your presence, to understand your holiness, to understand you're a jealous God. May we be humbled. May we put our priorities and our perspective in place. May we understand that this world and everything in it belongs to you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So this message is going to get a little bit deeper into what Joshua was talking about. But as for me and my house, it's kind of interesting what he's saying here. Let me summarize it for you again. The blue is Joshua, but as for me and my house, we're going to save the Lord or serve the Lord. And then Israel says some good things here. Israel says, you know, we don't want to serve the other gods. We don't want to serve the, um, the gods of Egypt. We see that you've driven out the Amorites. And what they say here, we will also serve the Lord for he is our God. And Joshua comes back and says, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he's a holy God. It's kind of interesting. You think Joshua sets a tone, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Israel responds, we will serve the Lord too. And this is getting kind of exciting. Like, wow, they got it. They got it. This is like in my dental office when I, I say, you know, I rush four times a day. I've tried to floss once a day. And my patient says, I want to do that too. And then I would say, no, you can't do that. You're not able to do that. It'd be so discouraging to have your dentist tell you, you're not going to be able to accomplish that. You can't do it. And that's what Joshua says here. You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. You think at the end of his life, he's 110 years old, Joshua would be encouraging him. He'd say, oh, you guys can do it. Come on, you guys. My time is up. I'm going I'm to motivate you guys. He does just the opposite. You can't do it. You're not able to do it. And I think that's very strange that Joshua would do this at the very end. This is the last time he really speaks to the Israelites. Why would he say this? Why would he kind of discourage his people after 18? Okay, so 
He takes over his age 85, seven years of campaign, he wipes out all the Canaanites, and then 18 years he's living with them. Just 18 years. He's just living life with them. He got his uh, land. Everyone else has got their land. For 18 years he knows them. He knows them well. And he says, for he is a holy God. He gives his reason. God gives his reason. Uh, Excuse me, Joshua gives his reason. This is the reason why you can't serve God. I think that's interesting. He is a holy God. And he goes on to explain it a little bit more. We read this verse here. He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. So again, it's not real encouraging here, right? I mean, don't we want to talk about the God of grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and redemption? That's the kind of God that we want. That's the kind of God we normally hear about. But Joshua thinks the most important thing I can tell you, the thing I want to impress upon you, the thing before I leave this earth and don't have any more time with you on earth, he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. This is the God that takes sin very seriously. And so I want to spend most of my sermon talking about why holiness is the key character of God. Why Joshua closes his life and his sermon with this idea of holiness. And we sang about that this morning, about holiness. When we think about God, and we think about all the characteristics that God has, why is holiness at the core of God's being? Why does holiness drive all the other characteristics? I want you to think about that this morning. This is from a book called Loving God. Loving God was written by Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson served President Nixon as one of his executors in the 70s. On June 1st, 1973, Chuck Colson, special counsel to President Nixon, heard the gospel from Tom Phillips. While Watergate exploded in the press, that night he cried out, God, I find myself irresistibly drawn into your waiting arms. That was the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began the greatest adventure of my life. This is what Colson writes. And then he goes on. This is very interesting. Several years later, the formal Wright House architect man repented of a woefully inadequate view of God. He was in a very dry season. A friend suggested to Colson that he also watch a video lecture series by R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God. And here's what Colson writes in his book. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees, deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness. It was a life-changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God in I believe and worship. So there's a sense where I think we all accept Christ. Like, yeah, this is great. But some of us have come to a deeper level. Like, there's something deeper here. A holiness of God. And it broke Colson down to a point he'd never been at before. You read the book of Job. The same thing happens by the end of the book of Job. Job is broken down to a point where he is in complete awe of God. You guys have read Isaiah. The same thing. Especially Isaiah 6. When he comes into the presence of God, he just falls down. What does he say? Woe is me. He's falling apart. His very essence, his very bones, he's falling apart. When we come into the presence of God, like Paul on the road to Damascus, we don't question, like, God, why'd you do this? He falls down on his knees and says, who are you, Lord? That's the picture of God that is holy. When you get to that level of God, you're at a different level 
of understanding holiness. So when we think about God, one of the ways that we often picture God is that he's sitting on a throne. I want you to think about that. I think that's an accurate picture, whether we see it in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Revelation. When God is sitting on his throne, that's the right way to think about God. We think about his presence on the throne. That's a king in control of his kingdom. He's not worried about fixing the roof. He's not thinking about, I got to pay the mortgage. He's not thinking about, I wonder where my kids are and if they're okay. God is in complete control when he's on his throne. That is the place he should be. When he sits on his throne, he's at peace and he's in control. And this helps us understand as we think about his holiness. I want you to think about this. His throne is his right to rule the world. We do not give God authority over our lives. He has it whether we like it or not. When he's sitting on the throne, he's our king. Whether you acknowledge that or not, whether you do it here in heaven, you're going to acknowledge that he's king. And it's utter folly to act as though we had any rights to call God into question. We need to hear the blunt words. Now, this is very interesting. You have to listen closely. This is Virginia Stem Owens, who wrote in a reform journal this. Let me get this one thing straight. God can do anything he damn well please, including damn well. If he pleases him to damn, then it's done. Ipso facto. God's activity is what it is. There isn't anything else. Without it, there's no being, including human beings, presuming to judge the creator for everything that he is. Few things are more humbling, few things more sense of raw majesty that God is utterly authoritative. He is the Supreme Court, the legislature, the chief executive, after him, no appeal. Those are kind of hard words. But when you think about someone sitting on the throne, a true king, truly authoritative over us, he can do whatever he wants. That's a true king. That's a true sovereign. That's who's sitting on the throne. I know some of us, including myself, are wrestling with this idea of the Canaanites. Here are the Canaanites living in the land. Not so peaceful, they're sacrificing their children, they're damning God, they're making fun of God, they're doing some bad things, but they're basically living there. What rights do the Israelites have to come and wipe out the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites? What right did Israel have to come in that land? That's a hard question. They were just living there. And God comes and wipes every single one. They say, don't leave a single one left. Wipe every one of them out. That's hard for us Christians. Like, man, I wish, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. I wish God didn't really make the Israelites do that because that's hard for me to swallow. That's hard for me to digest. But what happens if I told you that land did not belong to the Amorites? That land did not belong to the Hivites? That land does not belong to the Egyptians? That land does not belong to America? or, the, or the, um, us as Americans. That land belongs to God. Not only does that land belong to God, the whole planet belongs to God. The whole universe belongs to God. Can anyone sit rent-free on this planet and not pay rent to God? We owe it to God. 
He is our creator. He is our sovereign. He is our God. When we get this right, that he's sitting on the throne and he is the one that we owe our allegiance to, then we don't have to worry so much that Obama's in power. We don't have to worry so much that Trump is in power. You know what? The God who put those people in power is the one who's truly in power. We don't have to worry about these things so much on earth. Yes, we should be concerned. Yes, we should be Christians. Yes, we should be salt and light on this earth. But we don't have to worry about these things. If God is really God, if God is really sitting on his throne, these things are minor. These things are small. These things are under God's control. He is the author and authority of everything that's happening on this earth. There's nothing out of his control. If you get that right, we're beginning to understand a little bit We're scratching the surface on God's holiness. Another part I want us to understand here is that God is resplendent. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, filled in his temple, the train filling the temple. So not only is God sitting on a throne, there's glory all around him. There's no puny or silly creatures in heaven, only magnificent ones. The point is this, that even angels can't look look at God without feeling unworthy themselves. You remember these angels that have two wings that cover their heads and their um, eyes, two wings that cover their body, two wings that even cover their legs and their feet. They don't want anything exposed when they come before God. Even as powerful and as brilliant as angels are, they themselves hide in holy fear and reverence in the splendor of God. These magnificent creatures that we could never imagine how, how beautiful and how powerful they are are cowering in God's presence. They themselves bow down in God's presence. We're finally getting to the point now where I can talk a little more about God's holiness. This is God's character. We're learning about God and who he is. The true sovereign, the true one who is glorified. That's why we sang four songs this morning about God. That's why we're singing to him every opportunity we get. And this comes from Piper. John Piper is talking about God's holiness. He starts off with, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And if you're at Rise, who was teaching us about that? It's the only place in scripture. Love, 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 nope. Mercy, 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 nope. Compassion, 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 nope. Only in scripture is holiness emphasized to the supreme amount. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only time we see God's character, name name that why. Defining holy is language pushed to its limits of usefulness. To define holiness, God is God. And and Piper goes on to illustrate. The root meaning of holy is probably to cut or to separate. You guys know that. When we're holy, we're set aside, right? We're holy things. A holy thing is cut off and separated from the common. The common we call secular. That's why we often refer to these things as secular. We're to be different from the secular. We're not to be part of the common. So the Bible speaks of holy ground, holy Sabbaths, holy nations, a holy city, holy men and women, holy scriptures. Almost anything can become holy if it's separated from the common and devoted to God. That's why we can worship today, because we're holy. Because God made us holy. This book can we hold in our hands, that can be something holy because God makes it holy. It's his living word there. 
Now here's the tricky part, and don't lose, don't lose me here. But notice what happens when this definition is applied to God himself. What can you separate God to make God holy? How can we make God holy? To no one but himself. The very godness of God means that he's separate from all that is not God. There's an infinite qualitative difference between creator and creature. God is one of a kind in a class by himself. In that sense, he's utterly holy. Now we're getting, now we're getting to it. God is completely holy. All of us have sinned. All of us need God to make us holy. God is in a whole class by himself. When asked for his name in Exodus 3, he says, I am who I am. His being and his character are utterly undetermined by anything outside of himself. He is holy not because he keeps the rules. He wrote the rules. God is not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God. God is absolute. Everything else is derivative. What then is his holiness? His holiness is utterly unique, divine, transcendent, pure essence, in which his uniqueness has an infinite value. Call it his majesty, his divinity, his supreme greatness, his value of pearl of great price. That's it. That's all I could take from John Piper. It was so rich and there's so much there that he's telling us this is our God. This is what holiness is. It's in a class by himself. It's supreme. It's this greatness that can't be measured by anything else. It's his majesty. It's his divinity. It's his infinite value. That is God's holiness. And so I want you to understand, we often put ourselves in judgment of God. Well, God, I didn't really like that. God, I don't think you should have done it this way. God, that doesn't really suit my plans very well. Boy, we got it wrong. We have it so wrong. It's completely opposite of what we should be doing. We should be humbly bowing at this Lord's feet. The author of our universe, the one who is completely supreme, that is the correct way to view our God. So if we understand a little more about God's holiness now, let's go back to Joshua and see what he's saying here. You will not be able to serve the Lord. Why? Because he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or sins. Think, it's all true. Joshua got it right. That's exactly right what it is. He's holy. He's jealous. He can't tolerate our sins. Absolutely true. Knowing that not one of us can stand in our, his presence. Not one of us could do it. But it's interesting. And we didn't get a chance to really read this. This is... Um, their response. So let's say Israel understands God's holiness. Let's say Israel understands the concept of who God is, the author and creator of this whole universe, that he is our God. This is how Israel responds. The people said to Joshua, no, we will serve God. We are going to do it. They get their back. So Joshua said, you can't do it. And if you'll say, no, 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 we're going to do it. We're going to do it, Joshua. We, we can do it. We're going to serve the Lord. Then Joshua says to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen for yourselves 
the Lord to serve him. And then they say, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. So there's something going on here that's important to understand that a witness, a witness is someone that is a, you attest to a fact. You say, I, I, I know a fact and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say that's true. So they're saying, I understand God. He's holy. He's jealous. He doesn't tolerate sin. We're going to do it. We're going to serve that God. I know who he is. He made it clear to me. I understand the conditions. I understand this God that we're serving. I still want to do it. They're going in with their eyes wide open. They're going with a commitment of their lives that we are witnesses. We will serve the Lord. And, and this witness, again, is that for the rest of your life now, you have to stand and attest to the fact that you know that God is holy. You know God is jealous. You know that God doesn't tolerate sin. Okay, I got it. I do. I will. I'm going to make that stuff a commitment. And they go to a deeper level in their faith. They take a step that's even more severe than ever before. They make a commitment here that's going to invest their whole lives now. This is it. We understand God. We know who God is. And we still take that step of faith. When you do that, your faith goes to a whole new level. When you understand God and accept him on his terms, not our terms, you've taken your faith to a whole new depth. You're responding to God in a whole different way now. And I hope every one of you that heard this message today is responding in a different way. It's no longer what I want and what I think and what I think God should do. We're now witnesses to God as a holy, jealous God who hates sin. We need to respond in a different way now. So he closed off the last little bit here. Now therefore, put away foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Incline your hearts to the Lord. I'm afraid I'm going to have to spend next week going into that. I, I don't want to cover that today. But there's an idea here that we respond again to the Lord. But today, I do want to challenge you. If today's message brought us to a new level of your faith, if there's a deeper understanding of who God is, of his holiness and his majesty, his sovereignty, his authority in our life, how is it that we should now live our lives? What are things that we should be doing now? How is it that we change what are things that would be different in our life if we understood God in this way? Let me see if I have my slides correctly here. Let's see. So the original part of this sermon was that he was challenging them. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the challenge here rises to the fact that we are saying, God, I'm building my life upon you. You are now the foundation for my life. Everything revolves around Christ and what he's done. It should change our life. It should be really quite different. If you made this commitment that we will serve the Lord, and then the second one today, which we learned, that we're now witnesses, we understand who God is, and we still accept God, then there should be changes in our life. Very distinct, deliberate changes. How is it that we live out our life? How does this play out day to day? Okay, so 
my, my brother showed me something that he did at his church, and I'm copying it here. Jimmy's going to help me bring it up to stage here, and we'll take a look and see if we can see what this board has to say. So he, he challenges here. Let me just wheel over here. Yeah, okay. Good, thank you. Okay, you lift. Okay, good, thank you. Okay, good, thank you. And he had this board up here that was really quite interesting. He sent me a picture of it, and it said, before I die, I want this. And he wants his whole church to come up, and they filled up all this board. And I, I couldn't actually read what was written on their, on their board. It was kind of interesting, but the congregation members came up, and they said, in light of understanding what God has done, in light of seeing God as a holy God, as a supreme God, and one who is authoritative over every area of my life, what is it that I want? And it's not really our Christmas list from Santa Claus. It's not that kind of list. It could be, in some senses, if it's geared in a way that we understand God. God is a holy God. God is a witness, this God who has formed the earth, who spoke and the worlds came into being. The God who wiped out the Amorites and the Canaanites and took over the land. The God who has changed um, my life in a way that um, no one else could. So as I was singing this morning, I was thinking, well, what would I write on this board? And as we were singing this morning, I, I thought about it. Before I die, I want this. And, and one of the most joyous days of my life, the joyous day of my life, was actually Mara's wedding. It happened about a year ago. And it was so joyful to me because I got to see a lot of you. I got to enjoy, almost everywhere I looked in the room, I saw people that I loved and people I wanted to be with and people that were bringing me joy and they were having a fun time and we were eating together and laughing together. And I thought, man, this is such a good day. It's such a good day. But it kept getting interrupted. They made me go up and dance sometimes and they made me make this speech and I had to, and I, I, I think, oh, I had this worry and kind of anxiety in my heart that I couldn't really enjoy the day that I wanted to. And so as I was singing here this morning, I said, what it would it be like if I had a full day of God's presence and just enjoyed it? Sometimes you get a little taste of this at a retreat. You guys feel that at a retreat or hopefully during worship service, you just, man, I just love this day. But then the retreat comes to an end or the wedding comes to an end, or something comes to an end. And I, I was thinking here, as I was looking to this, if I, before I die, if I could have one day of perfect peace, it's a thing I've been wrestling with in my life, that I hope it's longer than a day, but one day when I don't have to worry about paying the rent. One day I don't have to worry about where my kids are. One day I don't have to worry about going back to work the next day. One day I don't have... I could just enjoy your presence. I can enjoy my family with Abby and Liddy, Mara and Julie. Enjoy God's presence. A perfect day when I'm not worried and anxious. Thinking how I could do, if I could really trust God, that he's in control. Know that God is God. And I don't have to worry. Like scripture tells me, I'm afraid I'm not that spiritual yet. I, I still worry. I still have things in my life that, that make me anxious. I would love to have that day. And as I was singing this morning, I'd love to share that day soon. You know, and I look forward to my father who's not here on this earth anymore.
with my brother who's not here on this earth anymore. To enjoy that day and just look forward to that day where I, man, whether I'm here or with the Lord in eternity, I have perfect peace. That's shalom that we talk about, right? Perfect peace. That would be my way. I would love that. And I hope it lasts longer than a day. I hope that it would go. But I'd be interested to see what you guys write on this board. This is going to be in the hallway. Uh, the pens are here. I'd like to see if we know God in a deeper way. You know, we can ask for these things or pray for these things or long for these things. Before I die, what is it that we long for, we're passionate about? Things that would drive us. Things to say, God, you are God. You are God. And I'm interested to find out what you guys would think and pray about for that day. Okay, let's close with a word of prayer.